Good evening, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting for this Wednesday evening. And once again, thank you for tuning in and uh, getting engaged in, in some of this alternative media and and starting to explore some of the things behind the scenes about what is really controlling our society. So I'll once again, thank you for, for doing that, and I want to start right off the top with something that I think all of us have either either experienced directly, hopefully not, or have at the very least heard from other people, which is, oh, why do you even bother fighting against all of this corruption and this greed and all of the things that we see going on? Why do you even bother the... The New World Order, the people in control, they've always been in control. They'll always be in control. Nothing that we do can ever have any effect. It's hopeless. And I'm sure we've all heard some degree of that in some form or other at some point when attempting to wake people up to the Matrix. And uh, and it's a very powerful and very uh, huge disincentive for a lot of people to actually wake up from the matrix to actually begin fighting what, uh, against the system and trying to affect the change that matters. And it's something that's uh, that sometimes when we're confronted with it, it's difficult to know how to even respond to that because if someone has made the mental decision that it's not worth fighting at all, even though they know what's at stake, even they, though they know that the things are being controlled behind the scenes, even though they know the charade that is being paraded out in front of us as being the political reality, if they've decided already to just roll over and surrender... Well, how do you even begin to confront that? Well, that is very much the topic for tonight. And I want to start, actually, by highlighting an article that I first highlighted back in 2008 uh, in an episode of my Corbett Report podcast at CorbettReport.com, episode 48, How to Read the News, which I think is a pretty good episode, if I can say so myself. I hope people will go back and and take a listen to it or re-listen to it if you've listened to it in the past. I think it stands up as, as quite an interesting episode, taking a look at and breaking down some of the, well, some of the meaning behind some of the headlines that are paraded out in front of us in the corporate media. But one of the stories that we took a look at in that episode of the podcast was called Everything Seemingly is Spinning Out of Control. It was an Associated Press story that was run in June of 2008. And again, what a headline. Everything seemingly is spinning out of control. This is an Associated Press story that was written by Alan Fram and Eileen Putman. So let me just start reading it for you. Quote, Is everything spinning out of control? Midwestern levees are bursting. Polar bears are adrift. Gas prices are skyrocketing. Home values are abysmal. Airfares, college tuition, and health care border on unaffordable. Wars without end rage in Iraq. Afghanistan, and against terrorism. Horatio Alger, twist in your grave. The can-do bootstrap approach embedded in the American psyche is under assault. Eroding it is a dour powerlessness that is chipping away at the country's sturdy conviction that destiny can be commanded with sheer courage and perseverance. End quote. And again, I hope you will go and find the link to that article. Well, from CorporateReport.com slash radio after tonight's broadcast, so you can go and read that article for yourself. But if you get the gist of that and the fact that it's a particularly flowery uh, piece of writing for an Associated Press article and a particularly bizarre topic to be writing about, I think you've picked up on the bizarreness of an article like that. Can you imagine the, uh, the, the assignment editor giving that assignment to poor Alan and Eileen? Hey, you know, a lot of people think everything is seemingly spinning out of control. Why don't you just write a story about that? 
Well, they, 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 they certainly did their best at any rate. But what is the point of a story like that other than to convince people that they are powerless, to put it in front of them again? Everything is spinning out of control, and it doesn't matter what you do, you are powerless. Well, that's the message they want to send to you, but tonight we're going to blast through that, and we're going to show you the way out of that trap, that mental prison that they want to put you in. So stay tuned with us tonight on Corporate Report Radio. And we are going through learned helplessness, a concept that I'm going to introduce you to, uh, well, by bits and pieces throughout tonight's broadcast, not only as a problem and a problem that has been engineered into our society, but also as a potential solution to some of our problems. And certainly not all of them. This is no soft soap, uh, you know, it's trying to sell you a pocket full of hope. I'm, I'm not doing that. I don't think this is a be-all and end-all to the solutions to our problems, but it can be an effective way of not only countering the type of powerless attitude that I was talking about there in the first segment, but actually changing that into a, a segment where, or a, a psychology even, where people understand the power that they have. And again, that's something that we were going over in the uh, just a few weeks ago on this very broadcast when we were talking about how every single time when the people stand up, the, uh, the, the government or the, the people that are trying to oppress us always back down. And whether that comes from the medical field with the, the attempts to force nurses and others to take their vaccines or when, whether that comes from the Internet uh, legislation they've been trying to pass but have been completely ineffective at, thankfully, so far because, because of people standing up. Once again, the power rests with the people. It's an important fact and one we have to draw out uh, and, and frame in, in the right way because there's a lot of different angles and uh, different approaches to this. So I want to start tonight by taking a listen to a clip about B.F. Skinner, a psychologist and uh, someone who was working in the middle part of the 20th century who had some very interesting ideas that revolutionized, really, the, the field of psychology and what uh, people thought they knew about people and how they learned. And for more on this, I would direct you to uh, uh, one of my, again, one of my episodes of my podcast, episode 145, called You Are Being Gamed, where we draw out some of the, uh, some of the, where we tease out some of the, the possible ramifications of this behaviorism of B.F. Skinner. And I'd also direct you to an, a video called what You've Been Missing, which is uh, part one of, I guess, a proposed series. I don't think any other episodes have come out yet, but a proposed series from TragedyAndHope.com where uh, we go through this uh, this uh, part of behaviorism and how it ties into the greater idea of the noble lie. But once again, after having consulted that, perhaps we'll understand a little bit better about B.F. Skinner. So let's take a listen to this clip in which uh, B.F. Skinner is talking about a, a, one of his most famous e experiments involving a Skinner box where they put a, well, a pretty much a starved pigeon into this box, and they managed to teach it to either peck at this uh, sign or to turn 
basically on command by uh, by rewarding it with little pieces of little pellets. So that's what you see in this video as the narrator is going. So let's go to that clip. The pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time. You're every, perhaps every tenth time or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. And there is a good example of how you can move from uh, the, uh, the pigeon to the human case because one of the, one of the schedules which is very effective with, with rats or pigeons is what we call a variable ratio schedule. And that is at the heart of all gambling devices and has the same effect. The pigeon can become a pathological gambler just as a person can. Now, the fact that we found that out with pigeons and could prove it by removing and changing the schedule makes it easy for us to interpret the case with, with the, human, the human subject. We, we don't say that the, the human subject uh, gambles to punish himself, as the Freudians might say, or gambles because he feels excited when he does so. Nothing of, nothing of the sort. People gamble because of the schedule of the reinforcement that follows. And this is true of all gambling systems. They all have variable ratios built into them. So what we've learned from the pigeon, it made it possible to interpret this vast field very effectively. Yes, indeed. That's the voice of the man himself, B.F. Skinner, the exalted and much revered psychologist who came up with the, the principles of operant conditioning and really refined it into a an, almost an art form, if you want to put it that way. Of course, he was developing uh, some a field of thought that had at least been developing and taking place since Pavlov's famous experiments with his dog and ringing the bell in order to provoke the salivation. And I think we all uh, we all know about that story, but uh, but really Skinner managed to turn it into an art form and got to really tr be able to train pigeons to peck or turn on command simply by uh, giving them rewarding them at the key times with their uh, their little pellets of food. So I would hope you would go and watch that video so you can actually see it at work. Again, it has to be seen to be believed, but it certainly can be done, and it was done. And, of course, the point of this is not to condition pigeons to do little tricks. The point is, as exactly as Skinner pointed out there, that, oh, well, you know, we can use these results in terms of applying them to humans, because it turns out that this variable ratio schedule for giving people prizes which is exactly what is used in casinos and other gambling places in order to keep people uh, pumping their coins into the little slots of the slot machines, well, that's, that's the exact same principle upon which this is working. And you can hear uh, Dr. Skinner there rubbing his metaphorical hands in glee because this is exactly what, uh, what the social engineers who have been studying human humanity for centuries and, and have really been honing it down to an art form for at least the past century or so, well, is exactly what they want to, uh, to hear. That's exactly what they want to have. They want to have a, the idea and the ideal of a completely controllable society, a society you can control at every level and micromanage down to the nth degree. And this is something that uh, Skinner here 
himself wrote about in a utopian novel that he wrote called Walden Two, building on Thoreau's Walden, in which he was writing about this beautiful society where uh, everyone is completely controlled in the exact same way the pigeons were were taught to, in how to peck or how to turn. Well, the people in this society could be controlled and and everything could be regulated by, of course, the uh, the priestly scientific class at the very top who managed everything. So I think we all know where that's going. And again, we see this reflected over and over and over again in the uh, the technocrats and the eugenicists who who always delight at the idea of such a society. And we see such things as, you know, H.G. Wells's Time Machine, where we had the uh, the Morlocks and the Eloys, the uh, Morlocks living in the the ape-like people living in the caves, and the Eloys being the uh, the cerebral, you know, ruling over everything. And that's exactly where the, uh, the the so-called elite truly believe they're taking society, and that's truly where they want to take it. And again, this is not uh, just uh, airy-fairy out of nowhere. You can actually see uh, BBC news reports about how the human species is going to diverge into two species, and they have little pictures of little ape-like beings and, and these other tall, you know, alien-like beings that will <laughs> the others will develop into. Again, this is BBC News talking about this. It's just bizarre. But this is truly the type of society they want, and that's the classical Pavlovian conditioning, operant conditioning. That type of uh, that type of idea was exactly what they wanted. But there were some experiments that came up in the 1960s that actually threw that on its head and actually overturned a lot of the, the fundamental assumptions of that behaviorist way of looking at humans. And that comes from some experiments that were started by a man named Martin Seligman, who was working with some colleagues at that time, and uh, they, they came up with some surprising results that made everyone have to rethink their ideas about how people could be trained. So I'll start reading from a, uh, a little section on a website called newgenesis.com talking about his experiments. It says, quote, In early 1965, Martin E.P. Seligman and his colleagues, while studying the relationship between fear and learning, accidentally discovered an unexpected phenomenon while doing experiments on dogs using Pavlovian classical conditioning. As you may observe in yourselves or a dog, when you are presented with food, you have a tendency to salivate. Pavlov discovered that if, ring, if a ringing bell or tone is repeatedly paired with this presentation of food, the dog salivates. Later, all you have to do is ring the bell and the dog salivates. However, in Seligman's experiments, instead of pairing the tone with food, he paired it with a harmless shock, restraining the dog in a hammock during the learning phase. The idea, then was that after the dog learned this, the dog would feel fear on the presentation of a tone and would then run away or do some other behavior. Next, they put the conditioned dog into a shuttle box, which consists of a low fence dividing the box into two compartments. The dog can easily see over the fence and jump over if it wishes, so they rang the bell. Surprisingly, nothing happened. They were expecting the dog to jump over the fence. Then they decided to shock the conditioned dog, and again, Nothing happened. The dog just pathetically laid there. Hey, what's going on? When they put a normal dog into the shuttle box who never experienced inescapable shock, the dog, as expected, immediately jumped over the fence to the other side. Apparently, what the conditioned dog learned in the hammock was that trying to escape from the shocks is futile. This dog learned to be helpless. The result was opposite to that predicted by B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, which argued that the dog must have been given a positive reward, like a yummy dog biscuit, to just lie there. These observations started a scientific revolution 
resulting in the displacement of behaviorism by cognitive psychology. What you are thinking determines your behavior, not only the visible rewards or punishments. That, my friends, is an absolutely key insight. So when we come back on the other side, we'll start breaking that down. But I'll give you the hint. This is the idea of learned helplessness. The dog learned that the shocks were inescapable. So even when they were escapable, the dog had already learned to simply sit there and take them, even though it could have easily gotten away from them. Once again, some very bizarre, very interesting conclusions and uh, pretty surprising, I would say. So once again, we'll take a short break, but after the break, we'll come back and we'll continue breaking down the concept of a learned helplessness. Welcome back, friends. We are here on Corbett Report Radio, and if you're just joining us tonight, tonight we're going over the concept of learned helplessness, the idea that people can actually learn that there's no way out of a situation, there's no way to escape some bad thing that's coming along the line. So even if it is possible for them to get out of the way, to get out of harm's way, to do something to protect themselves, they won't do it. This is a pretty profound concept and one that, again, threw out a lot of ideas that had been placed into the, the annals of psychology, things that had been talked about and expounded about and, and examined in great detail by people like B.F. Skinner, who had developed their entire theory of behaviorism around the idea of, well, if we can just associate something with, uh, with a bad thing, for example, if we can just give someone a shock while... Uh, well, uh, and, and every time a light goes off or something, well, if we put the light on, they'll try to get out of the way of the shock. But the problem is that, in fact, people can become so used to the idea that they can't escape whatever bad thing is coming that they will simply sit there and take it. And so as we were talking about before the break, we were talking about the experiment of Martin Seligman back in 65 when he was doing this with some dogs and found that Basically, he could train the dogs to be helpless. He could restrain them during the first part when they were learning that uh, that a certain response uh, was required. When, for example, when a light went off, they would get shocked. Well, if they were restrained during that shocking phase, that learning phase, then later on, when they had the chance to simply just jump out of the way and escape from that shock, they wouldn't even consider doing it because they thought that they were basically helpless. They thought there was nothing they could do. This is a profound thing for a number of different reasons, reasons, but one of them is that final sentence that I read to you from that article we were reading before the break, where it, it talks about something truly fundamentally different from anything that had gone before it, which is the idea that what you are thinking determines your behavior, not only the visible rewards or punishments. This is very profound, the idea that your mental space, the mental space that you're in, will determine your actions is something that psychologists had not to that point really seriously been considering. So let's tease that out a little bit more. This this uh, article goes on to say, the theory of learned helplessness was then extended to human behavior, providing a model for explaining depression, a state characterized by a lack of effect and feeling. Depressed people become that way because they learned to be helpless. Depressed people learned that whatever they did is futile. 
During the course of their lives, depressed people apparently learned that they have no control. Learned helplessness explained a lot of things. But then researchers began to find exceptions of people who did not get depressed, even after many bad life experiences. Seligman discovered that a depressed person's person thought about the bad event in more pessimistic ways than a non-depressed person. He called this thinking explanatory style, borrowing ideas from attribution theory. So once again, for those who are hard of thinking out there, or those like myself who are visual learners and find it hard to take in new concepts when they're presented only in audio form, really, this is a profoundly important uh, understanding, a profound, amazing thing that, that was discovered, that someone's mental explanations for what's happening and how it's happening to them can affect the way it actually influences their decision-making to the point where people can learn to sit, to be helpless and to sit there and to do nothing while bad things are happening to them simply because they believe that there's nothing that they can do to change it. Again, just absolutely incredible. And when you think about that in our political situation in this day and age, how many people do you think that applies to? Why do you think that the people, the banksters, the people who control the system, spend so many, not millions, but billions upon billions of dollars into all of the various types of media out there, including, of course, the controlled corporate news, quote-unquote media, that always try to convince you that everything's taken care of and there are there are experts and people who know what they're doing at the to- at the top, and they fundamentally love you and want to take care of you. And and really, yeah, bad things will happen. There, there's this boom and bust cycle, and sometimes you know you you'll you'll get squeezed a little bit. But but most people are happy, and, and you should just accept it for what it is. Why do you think that that is the constant message that they're trying to pump into your brain? Because they know exactly as they have spent all this money trying to study humans down to every last nth degree, they know that you will eventually start to internalize that, and you will believe yourself that there's nothing you can do to affect your circumstances. And once you decided that, you are no better than the dog that just sits down and takes it while they continue to shock him, even though all he has to do is jump over this tiny little fence that he could easily do. Again, it's a profound thing to think about. And uh, there's an interesting example that they give in this article. They say, for example, let's say you fail a math exam. How do you explain why? You could think, number one, I am stupid. Number two, I'm not good in math. Three, I was unlucky. It was Friday the 13th. Four, the math teacher is prejudiced. Five, the math teacher grades hard. Six, I was feeling ill that day. Seven, the math teacher gave an exceptionally hard test this time. Eight, I didn't have time to study. Nine, the teacher grades on a curve. Seligman found that these explanations could be rated along three dimensions. Personalization, internal versus external. Pervasiveness, specific versus universal. And permanence, temporary versus permanent. He found that the most pessimistic explanatory style is correlated with the most depression. The statement, I am stupid, is classified as internal, universal, and permanent. So, once again, if you think that what is bad is happening to you is your own fault and all you can do is sit there and take it, you will eventually start to internalize that and you will not even look for ways out of your situation. That, my friends, is a profound conundrum. So on the other side of this break, we're going to start looking at the solutions to this and how we can turn it around. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain. The only thing. Right, welcome back, friends. And on that depressive note from our old friend Johnny Cash. We're going to continue delving into this concept of learned helplessness because it is a very profound one and it affects people probably more than they realize. And again, I'm not here on a high horse pointing down at people. I think everyone is affected by this to a certain extent when we begin to internalize the idea that bad things are inevitable and that there's no way we can escape them. We tend to give up trying to find ways out of our problems. So once again, we have the idea that Seligman uh, forwarded in his 1965 experiments where he showed that dogs that were shocked in such a way that they could not escape, well, later when they were presented with a way of escaping, they didn't even try to do so. They just sat down and took the shocks. So once again, does this apply to our current political situation? Oh, I would say so. And what are some of the indications of that? Well, for example, how about CBS News coming out uh, just uh, last week, February 8th, 2012. Congressional approval hits another all-time low. Talking about how a new Gallup poll shows that Congress's approval rating is at an all-time new all-time low of 10%. And uh, the previous all-time low had been reached oh, well, way back in December of 2011 at 11%. Uh, suffice it to say, con- congressional approval has been down in the dumpster for a very, very long time and is getting to a absolutely laughable level. I mean, among en- independents, congressional approval is 8%. 8% of uh, independents, 10% of the overall population believe that Congress is doing a good job in representing them in their interests. And yet, Despite the fact there are 90% of people in the nation who understand that Congress is bought and controlled and that they're not working in the interests of the people, despite that, Congress continues to function and people continue to go along with it and continue to obey all the ridiculous laws and the NDAA and all of the other just ludicrous things that they're throwing at at you. And one fundamental building block in that, of course, is the idea that, well, you know, there's nothing you can do. How are you going to? Ex- you can't. You can't change City Hall. You can't. You can't affect something that's truly going to change the system. You just have to conform to the system, adopt to the system. To a certain extent, you got to ignore it if you can, because well, you just don't want to even tune in to see the news anymore, because well, it's just going to be bad news all over again. So, so what's the point? So there's definitely that that syndrome going on and of course it's not just in the political world it affects every aspect of our lives including of course the economy as we watch the banksters at the top control demolition the entire economy with their their funny money that they create out of nothing to use in their little casino gambling economy of derivatives and all these other frauds that they have going on that are so complex that the average person doesn't even have time to begin to start to understand what's going on let alone to really demand accountability for it but I think that the sense of hopelessness and helplessness is conveyed in a blog from Jon Snow, a presenter for Channel 4 News. Uh, Why have no bankers been arrested? And he writes, uh, the publication of the Vickers, Vickers report into British banking reform sparks the question why the UK has so far failed to prosecute a single individual for his or her misdeeds during the financial meltdown of 2008. 
And uh, not so much different in the U.S. situation, as I'm sure many of the listeners out there know. Again, it seems like these so-called elites are completely unaccountable, and there's nothing we can do to hold them to account. There's nothing we can do to actually bring these people before any semblance of law and justice so that they can be held accountable for their actions. And so, since there's nothing you can do, why bother trying? Why not just let them bygones be bygones, let them do whatever they want to do, and as long as there are some scraps from the table that fall off every now and then, we'll fight with each other over those scraps. No problem with that absolutely so we can we can turn daggers on each other and, and start to go at each other's throats but uh, but to, to think about actually trying to reform the system or actually take the system on well that's that's just a pipe dream nothing could possibly ever happen in that way of course again i'm not saying this is true i'm saying that this is the type of mentality that people get into so that they just sort of shrug their shoulders and ask with a sort of perplexed look on their face. Well, why have no bankers been arrested? Well, you know, that's just the way things are. Or, oh, Congress at a 10% all-time low approval rating? Well, you know, huh, that's just the way Congress functions. And again, we never get our attention turned, certainly not in the controlled corporate media, to those stories that indicate something different. The fact that we do have power, that we can turn things around, that we can make a difference, which is Again, as I was stressing a few weeks ago on this program, something that happens again and again and again in time after time, as long as the people can become motivated to actually get off their butts and do something, change can occur. And yet another example, we went over it on Food World Order recently from foodworldorder.com, BASF to stop selling genetically modified products in Europe talking about how customers basically said, no, we won't take it anymore. We don't want your GM monstrosities shoved down our throats. We're not going to take it. We're not going to buy it. We don't want it in our countries. And BASF had to shut down. They're, they, they're not doing their uh, their uh, laboratory experiments. They're not doing their, their marketing in, in Europe anymore because they know it's just not going to float with the European peoples. So why can't the American people get, get it together to start that same type of movement at home? Of course there are political challenges. Of course it's going to be difficult. But it is, to a certain extent, a question of perception. How you view the problem will affect how you actually start to implement a solution. And if you view that problem as inescapable, as universal, as something that just is, then you will do nothing at all to confront the problem. And that, my friends, is the real problem. And that's why, really, fundamentally, I, I have since pretty much the beginning of the corporate report, always stressed that the only revolution that matters is the revolution of the mind. This is all about the way that you perceive the world it is the way that you can actually affect change. And again, I don't know how much uh, more clear I can make that, and there are so many different points to go through on here. But one example coming from that uh, that article that we were reading earlier about learned helplessness is the exact opposite. We can apply this not to how we can learn to just be dogs that just sit there and take the shock, but how we can learn to be people who take something that bad that happens and say, well, it doesn't have to be that way, and we can affect the change. So reading from further on in that article, it says, uh, the, talking about the explanatory styles about uh, people who, who decide that they're stupid, therefore they can't do the test or, or whatever the case may be. It says, on the other hand, a more optimistic person would blame someone or something else, such as the math teacher gave an especially hard test at this time. The most optimistic explanatory style is external, specific, and temporary. Conversely, for a good event, the explanatory style reverses, for example, for a perfect score on a math exam, the depressive would say, 
I was lucky that day, discounting his intelligence. The optimist would say something much more encouraging, such as, I am smart. We often learn explanatory styles from our parents. There are advantages to both optimistic and pessimistic explanatory styles. Certain jobs call for an optimistic outlook, such as inventing or sales. Others, such as accounting or quality control, call for a more pessimistic outlook. Seligman suggests in his book, Learned Optimism, that one can overcome depression by learning new explanatory styles. This is the basis of cognitive therapy. So basically, people can learn that instead of blaming themselves and saying, I'm stupid and, and there's nothing that I can do to change this, people can learn literally to think of the problem in a different way that helps them to make and implement a solution that works. And th again, this is something that's been tested and this is something that has been shown to actually work, that people can actually, through studying the problem or, or, or consulting a therapist or whatever it may be. There's lots of different ways to do this, but they, they can learn to actually approach the problem in a completely different way. And wait, it gets even better. In fact, not only is it possible for people to reform their thinking from learned helplessness to learned optimism so that they can actually become productive members of society again and start implementing the types of solutions to the problems that they come across, but... Not only can they do that, that is also contagious. The idea of people turning their lives around and of becoming optimistic and starting to, to make solutions, that actually affects other people around us and other people we don't even know. Again, this is some pretty mind-blowing stuff. So I'd like to turn to a TED Talk. Of course, everyone, I think, has heard of those TED Talks at TED.com where thinkers come together and talk about their little pet theories and projects and things that they're working on. Usually very interesting. Of course, there's also some really horrific things like uh, Bill Gates laughing about uh, reducing the world's population through vaccines and other things like that. But uh, but always uh, some interesting talks uh, in, in TED and uh, lots of things coming out. And this one was delivered in 2010 by a researcher named Nicholas Christakis, who had a very interesting observation about social networks and the way that our understanding, our perceptions, our optimism or our pessimism can actually affect people around us in ways that we haven't even begun to explore yet. So let's take a listen to that clip from that TED Talk. The story begins about 15 years ago when I was a hospice doctor at the University of Chicago, and I was taking care of people who were dying and their families in the south side of Chicago. And I was observing what happened to people and their families over the course of their terminal illness. And in my lab, I was studying the widower effect, which is a very old idea in the social sciences, going back 150 years, known as dying of a broken heart. So when I die, my wife's risk of death can double, for instance, in the first year. And I had gone to take care of one particular patient, a woman who was dying of dementia. And in this case, uh, unlike this couple, she was being cared for by her daughter. And the daughter was exhausted from caring for her mother. And the daughter's husband, he also was uh, sick from his wife's exhaustion. And I was driving home one day, and I get a phone call from the husband's friend, calling me because he was depressed about what was happening to his friend. So here I get this call from this random guy that's having an experience that's being influenced by people at some social distance. And so I suddenly realized two very simple things. First, the widowhood effect was not restricted to husbands and wives. And second, it was not restricted to pairs of people. And I started to see the world in a whole new way. 
like pairs of people connected to each other. And then I realized that these individuals would be connected into foursomes with other pairs of people nearby. And that, in fact, these people were embedded in other sorts of relationships, marriage and spousal and friendship and other sorts of ties. And that, in fact, these connections were vast. And that we were all embedded in this broad set of connections with each other. All right. Once again, that's Nicholas Christakis at the TED conference in 2010 talking about the widower effect, where widows are more likely to die after the death of their partner within the first year because because of the uh, the effect of that. But the fact that it doesn't only affect the spouse, it doesn't affect just the partner of the person, who, for example, who who dies in that example, but it affects those around them, people who don't necessarily have any direct relation at all with the person who died. That's a pretty profound finding, and again, it's one that was found not only in that particular instance, but once studies were conducted, it was found in a number of different ways. And as he goes on to explain in that talk, it actually applies to obesity and all sorts of other things that you wouldn't necessarily think go together. And uh, and after having done some various uh, experiments to try to sort out what was happening, whether there was a direct causal effect on people around us and people uh, that are in turn affected by those around us, or whether there's some other type of effect, or whether it's birds of a feather flock together, therefore obese people hang out with obese people, etc., or what was going on, they found a little bit of all of those interacting, which means to a certain extent the changes that we make in our own life, or, for example, in our own perception of the world, in the case of learned helplessness versus learned optimism, actually starts to affect not just our friends and those around us, but their friends and people that we've never even met. That's the concept of this vast social network, this big web that we're all in that can affect us and we can affect it in ways that we haven't even begun to really explore yet. That's pretty profound and pretty exciting stuff in some ways because it does mean that there is a solution and that the solution is amplified. It amplifies itself. Not only can we learn to go from learned helplessness where we sit down and take the the metaphorical shocks from Congress and the economy and all of these other things that seem completely out of our control, but that not only can we change that attitude and start to actually become productive people who actually realize that we have power and can implement changes in our society, that attitude change starts to affect people around us and people around them, and it has effects on society that we can't even calculate. That's pretty profound. That's pretty exciting. That's pretty amazing when you start to think about it. And I bring this up specifically, this this researcher, because he was also featured in a recent documentary that I'd like to bring to people's attention called I Am Fishhead, uh, which I featured in a recent podcast uh, episode about psychopathy. This is about uh, psychopaths and how they affect our society and, uh, of course, how they, for example, get into positions of power in in the banking uh, sector in Wall Street so that they can affect things like the complete and utter decimation of our society, as we saw in the 2008 collapse. But, hey, it works out for a few people at the very top, and those happen to be the psychopaths who are manipulating the system, so they don't really care because they have no conscience. We've talked about the problem of psychopathy before, and I think a lot of people are becoming aware of that problem. But the interesting part of that documentary, I Am Fishhead, is that they offer a solution that just as the way a single psychopath within a corporation or within a social structure can start to 
tear apart the bonds and start to really demolish that structure and start to create sociopaths who who copy the psychopath in order to climb up this corporate ladder and, and all sorts of effects like that. Well, in the exact opposite way, when people actually form bonds that are close and caring and based on trust and friendship and, and the uh, empathy and all of these good human emotions that the non-psychopaths have, that can start to affect the people around us and the people around them, and it starts to become its self-amplifying effect so that we can truly start to affect change in societal ways simply by changing our perceptions. And again, that to me is the fundamental point, because all of this, all of the various ways that we're enslaved, only work if we believe ourselves to be slaves. They can imprison our bodies, but they can never imprison our minds, at least until they develop the perfect technology to do so, Only we can do that to ourselves. And once we find that key and start to practice learned optimism instead of learned helplessness, we can truly start to change this society and not only that, not only empower ourselves, but empower those around us to copy us. Again, some exciting stuff, my friends. And that is the promise of learned optimism. And that's what I want to bring to you tonight. So let's take another short break. And after that, we'll wrap things up here on Corbett Report Radio. Right, friends, here we are back on Corbett Report Radio for the closing minutes here tonight. And once again, we are going over learned optimism versus the learned helplessness that we've all been taught, or at least uh, that we've uh, certainly seen in a lot of people around us, the, the people who understand that bad things are happening and that all sorts of terrible things are going on, but will not even lift a finger to do anything about them. Because there's nothing we can do. We can't really change the system. You just have to learn how to lie down and accept it. Well, that, my friends, is giving in to the system, and that is exactly what we have to counter. But some notes of clarification and some notes of caution in the final moments here. Uh, Of course, this is not to say that this is the key, the be-all, and end-all to everything in the world. Of course, you can teach the dog that they can escape and that they have to change their their thinking, but again, they still have to be able to jump over that fence, to use the analogy from that experiment. And uh, and also, it's not so simple as to say that we're always and only being shocked by the uh, the, the powers that shouldn't be. They're not always just uh, presenting us with, with fear and boogeymen, although that's certainly a big part of what they do. But it's a carrot and stick. They, they, they know how to give little nuggets, little scraps uh, from heaven now and then to keep people involved and invested in the system. And that, my friends, is the old operant conditioning that we were talking about back with B.F. Skinner where he knew just if you just gave a, a few pellets of food to the pigeon every now and then, that could be the most effective way. Don't give them the pellets every single time they do what you want them to do. Just to, just now and then, just make it a bit random, and the the, 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 pe- the pigeons or the, whatever it is, the humans, will will undoubtedly go along with the system. So again, they can use little carrots uh, once in a while to get our, our attention, to get us to do what they want us to do, and then they can use the stick of the, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman or whatever it is to come along and scare you back into submission. 
So unfortunately, it's a little bit more complex than the simplicity of the, the dog analogy would be. And one way that that manifests is, of course, every four years, they give you that presidential election selection, it should be, where they uh, they dangle some candidate or other in front of you and say, well, look, here's the change, here's the promise, here's the hope, vote for this one. And of course, we saw so many people buy into that with Obama. And uh, <laughs> despite the fact that they learned once again that it was all just a parlor trick, well, they're gearing up to do it yet again. So whether it's Obama or Romney or Santorum or whatever puppet they want to dangle in front of the people as the promise and hope and change, you can bet that a significant portion of the public is going to go along with it again. And that's really, if you take the the dog shock uh, experiment analogy, it's like uh, another dog comes up to the dog that's being shocked and says, "Hey, look, I'm I'm friends with uh, with this guy, this uh, this guy in the lab coat who keeps shocking you. I'll I'll get him to stop shock- shocking you. Don't worry, just just give me some of your food." So uh, the dog gives him some of the food and he just runs away. Well, that's pretty much what happens. The the politicians come along and oh, well, don't worry, we'll turn it around. We just have hope in us. Just put your faith in us, and we'll we'll turn things around for you. You don't have to do anything we'll just make sure that the shocks stop coming and uh and of course they don't but by the time they don't those per- those people who have promised you the world have already run away with whatever they was they needed to get out of that political puppet office so again the answers are fundamentally not to be found outside if you're looking outside yourself for the answers and the solutions you've started in the wrong place you have to get up look in the mirror and ask yourself what you can be doing to get out of the problems that you are in and that is the message that is the power that is the optimism it's not false hope it's something true it's something real it's something that each and every one of us has to find within ourselves each and every day so i hope on that note that you will get out there and start tackling the sol- the problems that you see in the world around you and making the change that will affect others in ways you can't even begin to imagine. And on that note, my friends, we're going to leave it there for tonight. Once again, thank you for joining me here on Corporate Report Radio. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow night.